Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study today. We ask that your spirit would be with us, your angels would be with us, and that our minds would be enlightened to see you today. We also pray that uh, you would be with the, the uh, Glass and Weigel family today and, and this week as they are grieving, that you will bring them comfort. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number three in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the lesson title this week is Spiritual Gifts and Prophecy. And, and on Sabbath lesson, somebody read for us the first two paragraphs, please. The first two paragraphs. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the existence of spiritual gifts. We're not alone either. Many charismatic and Pentecostal churches have claimed to see the manifestation of spiritual gifts among themselves. Some of these have included people in church making noises like animals, lions, donkeys, dogs, even chickens, as well as the utterances of prognostications and prophecies, such as the time it was prophesied that God blew up space shuttle Challenger in order to teach America a lesson because there was a public school teacher on board. Apparently some believe that God doesn't like the public school teachers. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy, but we also believe that everything should be tested by the Word of God. This week, using the Word, we'll take a closer look at some of these gifts. And what are, you, what are your thoughts about those, those two paragraphs? Any thoughts, questions, things pop into your mind? What do you think the most important point of those two paragraphs are? Everything should be tested by the Word of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I think, is the, is the critical point. And as we think about that, there are organizations, for instance, the, the Mormons believe uh, the Bible was an error and needed to be corrected, and Joseph Smith corrected the errors of the Bible. So, so the Bible is not what, what tests what Joseph Smith says. The Book of Mormon uh, corrects what the Bible says. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe there were certain errors in the Bible, and, and their you know, founders uh, corrected some of the errors of the Bible. There are other organizations that believe church tradition supersedes the Bible, and that church tradition is more important than Bible authority. But uh, the Seventh-day Adventist position, interestingly enough, is that the Bible is our authority. And uh, writing uh, from one of the founders of our church, uh, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes just to give you the solid founding from where our church uh, found its roots. This is out of Faith and Works, page 77. You must bring your creed to the Bible. And let the light of the Bible define your creed and show where it comes short and where the difficulty is. The Bible is to be your standard. The living oracles of Jehovah to be your guide. And then out of first elected messages 416. When God's word is studied, comprehended, and obeyed, a bright light will be reflected to the world. New truths received and acted upon will, bl- uh, will bind us in strong bonds to Jesus. The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to this holy word will be in harmony. Our own views and ideas must not control our efforts. Man is fallible, but God's word is infallible. Instead of wrangling with one another, let men exalt the the Lord. Let us meet all opposition as did our master, saying, It is written, let us lift up the banner in which it is ascribed the Bible as our rule and faith of discipline. And then one more. Just to put it in context for our church history, Evangelism, page 256, says, speaking of uh, Ellen White's writings, and this was written by Ellen White, says, the testimonies of Sister White should not be carried to the front. God's word is the unerring standard. The testimonies are not to be take the place of the word. Let all prove their position from the scriptures and substantiate every point they claim as truth from the revealed word of God. 
What do you think about those three? Uh, do you see a difference between the, the, the emphasis of Scripture and our authority than some other organizations that maybe take church tradition or take other more recent uh, uh, writers as authoritative over Scripture? Do you see a difference? Which gives you more confidence? The Word. Yeah. And what do you think about how we practice as a church? What I've read is the official position. Is that how it's generally pretty uniformly practiced that the Bible and the Bible alone is our creed? Have you ever been frustrated with that? Can you think of any examples? Any examples you'd like to explore or talk over where, where, uh, where we haven't necessarily built solidly on the Bible? Or have we always done that? Sabbath observance. Sabbath observance. So not which day is the Sabbath, but what how Sabbath is observed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody have any ideas or thoughts about that they'd like to explore? I think we pull a lot of Sabbath observance stuff from Ellen White's writings. And so that's not... I mean, it's from God-inspired, but it's not from the Bible. So... So it's not the question of, of which day is, is the Sabbath. I think the Bible's pretty foundational on that. But is this one of those issues that the Bible would say that every person, how we observe the Sabbath is to be convicted in their own heart as they understand the word as God enlightens their mind? Or are we to be someone else's judge and we're to dictate to other people how they observe the Sabbath? Convinced in your own mind. That's what Paul says in Romans and he even speaks about Sabbath days when he says that every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Even our health message, our diet. I mean, the Bible's not nearly as specific as Sister White is. Well, Sister White is accused of a lot of things, that if you read her in context, um, we have been cheated, maybe that's a strong word, by (coughs) compilations which leave out context. And um, if you would, I, I had a very interesting experience of purchasing the Youths Instructor and, and uh, the, the large youth instructor. And what's interesting about that is they republished the identical ones from which um, messages to young people were taken, was taken. Um, and the middle paragraphs were put into messages to young people. But if you are a reader of Sister White as I am, you realize that the beginning of almost any article begins with context. So you have something like, um, you should not milk, mix milk and sugar and, you know, because of this and this and this, this circumstance. And then you have where she writes to a lady in Michigan, to the husband, you must allow your wife to eat milk and sugar because, you know. So you, you have to have always context. And then there's advice. And then the longest part is always the gospel. And many, many of these excerpts leave out the context and the gospel. So, so the problem maybe that we've struggled with in our church is... is how people have used, and, and, and what we talked about last week, people not thinking for themselves. People surrendering their thinking to somebody they have put in authority over them. Whether it be in our church or in other organizations or other religions, the trouble is when we don't think and reason for ourselves. We allow some other individual to be our think, our mind for us. That's dangerous, is it not? Well, it's like you said, they take a little paragraph here and a paragraph there or even a part of a sentence... And you and I give give yeah. different advice to different people in different no. circumstances. Of course, Sister White did the same thing. And so, if you value Ellen White's writings, then what would you have to do with anything she wrote? You'd have to go to the Scripture and say, 
I have to find it supported in the scripture before I can be certain it's authoritative because our our, the Bible is our creed, and the Bible is our standard, and all of our positions are built on the Bible and the Bible alone. And if we can't build it from the Bible... Doesn't she herself say that if anything she has written disagrees with Scripture, then we are to take Scripture as the final authority? Uh, I've heard that. I, I haven't actually found it myself, but I'd like to find it. If somebody can find that and bring that to class, I'd like to read that. Yes, but I would like to find that one. Yes? I, I think some of the tension that I sense, at least in my life and my, my, own, my own studies, is not so much the issue as a conflict between Ellen White and the Bible. Oftentimes the Bible says certain things, and it's pretty black and white. Some things are less more ambiguous, and we have to have an interpretation for that. And what we're discussing here is interpretation using reasoning. But there are also elements of Ellen White where there are predictive things, like for instance, predicting the Civil War, or, or seeing and envisioning the Civil War, <coughs> that has nothing to do with the Bible. But it's something that's preparatory for the people that she's talking to. And so you can't go back and refer to the Bible and say, well, this is in support or not in support specifically of, of, of the Bible. So you use an element of uh, the practical aspects of what Ellen White is saying, applying it to your life, whether it's health, education, or, or, other, or other areas. So I don't, I don't think it's as black and white as just using Ellen White um, as, 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 a, as a support material for the Bible. It's about to speak on this thing. But the uh, Civil War predictability stuff had nothing to do with doctrinal formation. And so when you talk about building a creed or building a doctrine, that type of stuff really didn't play in, did it? Well, it didn't play in if you talk about visions, uh, like, for instance, the, the, the papacy. It's not explicit in the Bible, the papacy, and the, the position of the Adventist church is more explicitly stated by Ellen White than, than any, other, any, other, any other denomination that I know of. Well, historically, though, the Reformers all interpreted that. Luther, Zwigli, Knox... Um, Calvin, all of them, uh, historically, historical uh, Protestant Reformation, all identified uh, uh, papacy as the B system of revelation. That wasn't unique to our church. That's that's just a historical thing. So, um, okay, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Uh, somebody read this paragraph there. According to the New Testament. According to the New Testament, spiritual gifts are given for the completion of the mission entrusted to the church. This includes the nurture and edification of the church as well as the proclamation of the gospel to the world. The existence of these gifts should serve as a constant reminder of our utter dependence on the Lord in order for us to do the work he has called us to do. Thoughts about that? What is the mission of the church? These gifts are given for the church to complete its mission. What is the mission of the church? Proclamation of the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel. Other thoughts? The character of God. Reveal the character of God, which is proclamation of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? Help people in need. To help people in need. Any other thoughts? Mission of the church. I like those. I think those are exactly, I mean, there's lots of ways to say it, but that's really the mission of the church, isn't it? To take the truth about God, which destroys the lives of Satan, winning people to, to trust back to God, and then live that type of godly love in the way we treat others. I mean, isn't that the mission of the church? Well, yeah. Also to pre- prepare for the second coming of Christ. So this will be an opportunity to test what we just talked about. Here's, I'm going to read something from Ellen White, and let's see if we take this on its own merit, or can we substantiate what she says from the Bible. 
Okay? It would be an opportunity to test this. This is out of Education 154. Uh, in the question of the mission of the church and the purpose of the church and all those who call, call themselves Christian. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. It was to give his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating in practical life unselfish love. To choose the right because it is right. To stand for truth at all costs. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their, and their righteousness is to me, saith the Lord, Isaiah fifty four seventeen. So, I, lo- I mean, I personally love that. Do you guys like what, what she says there? Can you substantiate that from Scripture? Easily. Yes, easily. So we don't have to say, well, and White says it. We can say, this is, this is revealed throughout Scripture, isn't it? Did Jesus Christ reveal selfless love in his life? Did you see the two antagonistic principles face to face and how Christ treated people and how those who were, were, were following a different spirit treated people? How when he wanted to heal people, you mentioned Sabbath observance a minute ago, how he wanted to heal people on Sabbath and how those actuated by a spirit that wanted to destroy him wanted to keep people in bondage of sickness on Sabbath. Do you see the two antagonistic principles played out in his life? Yeah, I think we can see that very clearly. Do we struggle then in our church today with that same problem of loving others as Jesus did versus keeping the rules that can sometimes prevent us from loving others like Jesus did? Yes, we do. Yeah, how do we deal with that? We just got to show. Have any of you suffered in that circumstance? I see some smiles. So how do we show the unselfishness of Christ in our church today? How do we treat those in our own church when we find out about mistakes that they've made in their life, sins that they've they've had? How do we treat them? Has Christ treated the woman caught in adultery? Oh, we don't condemn you in our church. Is that how we do it? Think about this woman in, in a Middle Eastern mindset, much less, much less the Western mindset. We're pretty accepting of, of things compared. But in the Middle East mindset today, a, a woman caught in adultery, how is she treated? Stones. And families might even kill her still. Isn't that right? Honor killing still going on today. So think about this woman in that culture 2,000 years ago, caught and thrown out in the middle of the street. How would you feel if your worst secrets were made public? From the pulpit of the church. Would you feel comfortable letting people know? Would you feel like, it's okay, my church is a safe place. They would treat me like Jesus treated me. Like Jesus treated the woman. They would love me. They would accept me. Your friends might. Would you feel comfortable in front of the whole church that that's what you would get? And if not, do you see we have a problem in our church? Aren't we to love people like that? Yes. I witnessed about three or four years ago at our former church a real outpouring of acceptance. A young girl um, asked for special permission with her family to get up in front of the church and to ask forgiveness for uh, going to bear a child out of wedlock. And she said it was a very tearful time. I've never seen our church so emotional. 
and she just said, you know, I have committed a sin, and I, I humbly ask that everyone forgive me. And then I asked that as I rear this child on my own, because I've decided that um, I have made a mistake, and I do not want to marry the father. And she said, I'm hoping that, you know, you will embrace me and the child. And I have never, I mean, the whole church was so emotional for 30 or 40 minutes. And what do you think would have happened if she just stood up and said, I've made a mistake. I've gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And I've got an abortion schedule for next Tuesday. And I'm asking the church to support me in my decision to do that. What do you think? She met with, met with loving support. Why? Why? You see, it wasn't about her. Their love wasn't about her. Their love was about their endorsement of their own idea of what right and wrong is. That's what it was about. In our society today, Christians have bought into the idea that it, that abortion is murder, and any anybody in any course, in any circumstances, who promotes the, I'm going to raise this child out of wedlock, needs to be supported. It wasn't about loving her. It was about their own need to support their own position that they believe. If they loved her and she would have said the other, and I think we are all pretty confident if she said the other, there wouldn't have been this outpouring of support. There'd have been a, there'd have been some who would have supported, but there'd have been a big rift. Now, don't mistake that we are sitting here talking about that we should accept all behaviors as healthy, as okay. I'm not suggesting that at all. See, how do we view sin? Jesus told her he didn't condemn her, but he said, don't sin again. That's right. But notice the platform. Which came first? The instruction to live a sinless life or a healthy life or a life free from sin or leave your life from sin? Or the, neither do I condemn you. Which came first? Neither do I condemn See, the platform which gives us the, the courage, the strength to follow God's grace, to open the heart, to experience the Spirit, is the platform of His loving acceptance of us in our sin. We don't leave our sin first before we're accepted by God. We're accepted in our sin, and then, through His grace, we leave our sin. And we have it so much backwards, Satan knows that we can't leave our sin in our strength, can we? No. No. And so he wants that to be a barrier. We have to stop the bad things. But the bad things are symptoms of the sick heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. We can never leave a life of sin if we don't have a change of heart. And we can never have a change of heart if we don't trust God. Can we? And so Satan deceives us into thinking that the bad acts are the problem. The bad acts are the symptoms of the problem, like having fever and cough with pneumonia. Fever and cough are symptoms. We don't treat the fever and cough to get rid of the disease. We treat the disease to get rid of the fever and cough. And in Christianity, we spend our time treating the symptoms, treating the, the, the bad deeds. Let's get them pardoned. Let's get them forgiven. Let's get them paid for. Let's, let's get them erased from the record books. Let's get the deeds taken care of. But we're not dealing with the heart condition. Have a whole bunch of rules to prevent that behavior. Let's have a whole bunch of rules to prevent. And that's exactly what the Pharisees in Christ did. Exaction upon exaction, rule upon rule to control behavior, which is not resulting in heart transformation. Christ reaches the heart. Neither do I condemn you. I love you. And God hates sin like a doctor hates disease. Because it destroys his creation. But the doctor doesn't hate his patient. And neither does God hate the sinner. Yes. I'm probably not going to say this the right way, but I feel compelled that 
um, we don't overgeneralize about the church because we are the church. And um, I no more want to uh, assume that you think, well, yeah, just because of our wicked human nature, that there aren't some people who do agree and believe just what you're saying and would have that compassion and would have that grace and mercy in their hearts because they, too, have thought it through as you are explaining to us that we should be doing that. Um, but I, I worry that over the airwaves and perhaps some of this when we leave this room, overgeneralize that, oh, okay, well, this is all wrong and this is all trash and, and the church has got it all, but, but we've now got it all figured out right. Somehow... I just wish that that would come across a little more, that um, that I'm in agreement with you, uh, but you're not throwing the, the bathwater out with the baby. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's a, it's, a, it's a fine line, and we should discuss this. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the attitude we maintain towards people when they make mistakes, even when it's a premeditated mistake, is that we recognize that that mistake is based on the fact that they were born into a world with as David said, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. They were born in a heart, in, into a world with a heart that was bent towards self-centeredness. And that even when it's a premeditated act, it's bent, it's based on the fact that their heart has not yet been renewed. They, they were born infected with propensities towards evil. And without the grace of Christ, that's no other choice. Without the grace of Christ, we don't have a choice but to sin. Is that not true? Without the grace of Christ, we have no choice. We will be sinners. Okay? And so recognizing that these people, all of us in this room, are Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Without the grace of Christ, we have no opportunity for, for healing. So to be able to see a person in sin, not as deserving of retribution, but a, deserving of grace as, as, as Christ gave the woman in adultery. That's the point I was trying to get. And only when we receive the grace in the face of our abstinence, in the face of our sin, does it break the heart and win us over to trust where we then experience the transforming nature and repentance and want to live that better life. If we get simply stern justice, if we get simply retribution, if we get simply payback and condemnation, then it hardens the heart. The idea is Isn't that right? They need to see that it is we're not pronouncing on them justice or retribution. What we're trying to do is get them to see the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yes. Understand the consequences. And I appreciate you bringing it up because I think sometimes it can come across like church bashing when we challenge ideas that maybe we don't agree with. And, and I wouldn't want to suggest that. Um, uh, yet at the same time, Christ, when he was on earth, went around presenting the truth that came across to the leadership as bashing what they were doing constantly. So, and I think that we would all agree that Christ's presentation of the truth was the most gracious and the most loving and the most appropriate way to do it, yet it was still perceived as, as bashing of the organization such that they needed to kill him. That's how, how threatening it was to their organization. So, I'm sensitive that we don't want to be bashing the organization, yet we do want to present the truth and move the truth forward. So, it, it's a balance call there, and I appreciate that. Um, Monday's lesson talks about uh, some groups appreciate the edifying gifts of the Spirit and, and value those in operation still today, which include um, knowledge, wisdom, teaching, exhortation, faith, and mercy, but they deny that the signs gifts, such as prophecy, healing, tongues, and miracles, um, continue on past the death of the apostles, stating that these gifts were for a unique purpose uh, to give the apostles their credentials and stuff. Um, does anybody see an inherent conflict in that position? Internal conflict, an internal conflict in the position itself. 
The people who hold that position um, value the Bible as an authoritative source. They believe the Bible is to be, and they believe that the Bible will bring wisdom and knowledge and all these other things. And yet the Bible itself in Joel teaches that in the last days he'll pour spirit upon all people. The daughters will prophesy, the old men will dream dreams, the young men will see visions. And uh, and it gives the, the, the framework when this happens that the sun will turn darkness, the moon will be blood, and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I mean, this is the end of time that the Bible is saying we're going to have the prophetic gift. So if you actually value the position that we have knowledge and we have wisdom and we have these other gifts and we value the Bible, then we have to then say, well, okay, then the Holy Spirit is going to be able to give prophetic gifts because the Bible teaches it will. There's an internal conflict there. They deny what the Bible actually teaches while saying they believe the Bible. Do you see the conflict? Yeah. This also comes out of the Reformation. And I've read extensively it. And what it comes from, it's a, reje- it's a rejection by the reformers of the Catholic Church authority based on miracles, which their ultimate authority is based on miracles. And the reformers said, no, our authority is scripture. And that's where that basic, and the miracles have ceased. That, that's where that basic conflict comes. Ah. Okay, so it was, yeah. So do we have to throw, throw out the baby with the bathwater? Do we have to throw out um, the idea that God can, and the Holy Spirit still performs miracles to throw out the idea that miracles are an authoritative source of what we do? No, can't we say, uh, in fact, let's talk about that, these, these miracles. Um, if, some, if you see a miracle performed, does that mean that the person performing it is working for God? No. no. Does that mean that the message they're giving comes from God? No. no. Give some examples. If you went home today and your dog spoke to you like Balaam's donkey, okay, would, you, would you sit up and listen anyway? Yeah. Would, would it catch you by surprise? Would it shock you a little bit? Okay. Um, yes. And Balaam's donkey had a message from the Lord. Yes. But what about the serpent in the in the in the in the garden? There was another animal talking. Yeah, but the devil did that. Yes, and that message wasn't right. That was a miracle too. We can't tell when an animal talks just because an animal talks that it's from the Lord, can we? depends on what's said, what the message is. We have to think, we have to reason, we have to weigh it out, we have to compare it with the scripture to see whether it's true or not. And how about then if it says something that was mentioned earlier that has nothing to do with scripture? The message from your cat or your dog is that you need to sell your home, donate it to missions, and go work in the mission field in Zimbabwe. That's the message. Now, how do you test that from scripture? You can't. I don't know, it might be easy in today's market. To sell your house. Yeah. <laughs> if God didn't sell it, it might not sell. <laughs> so it would be a miracle of your household. Okay. You don't think you don't think the devil has the ability to get a house to sell in this market? Yeah. Is that a miracle that could be uh, counterfeited? That's when you have to use good judgment. Yeah. So my po- but how many people, if that were to happen, would take that instantly as a sign from God? Do it. None thinking. What about a man that's told to go kill his son? Like Abraham did. Yeah. It was from God, and it was inconsistent with what he thought God should be saying. It's only because of his previous experience with God he was able to determine that he was supposed to stood that, that, that Okay, so you just gave the you could say the clue. What was the what was the integral ingredient there? Do you know, for instance, do you know the voice of your spouse? Do you know when it's your spouse talking or someone pretending to be your spouse? Can you tell the difference? Okay. Most of the time? 
<laughs> you see, and, and this is what that new covenant experience is about. So what's the new covenant? I'll put my laws on your hearts and minds. No longer will a man say to his brother, know the Lord for all will know him. See, Abraham is one of the two people we've talked about in here already who had a special distinction to be described as God's friend. He was a friend of God. So when he heard the voice of God, he knew this was God talking. And if you notice, he didn't just go, and notice this as well, he didn't just go, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, okay. Uh, like the woman in Texas who, you know, in a postpartum psychosis, killed her kids, okay? It wasn't like that. He argued with God the whole way there. Debated, okay? Back and forth, back and forth. Reasoning it out. Finally coming to the realization, hey, wait a minute. I was like 120 when I had this. My wife's like 100 years old. This child was a miracle. We didn't bring this child into the world in the first place. Therefore, if God wants me to do this, he wants to demonstrate his power for resurrection and power over death. And he can brought this child in the first place. He can resurrect this child. So he had reconciled in his mind in his three-day journey before he actually did So he didn't just blindly, God said it, I'm going to do it. But Even notice that. The most important thing he forgot to do was to consult his wife. No, that wasn't... Actually... <laughs> that was not forgotten. That was purposely chosen. I understand that because she would have stopped him from doing it. Right. right. So what I'm saying is, so there he must have in some way doubted something because, you know, well, if I tell my wife, she's going to stop me, so... No, it wasn't doubting. It was doubting, his, it was doubting his wife's faith is what it was doubting, that his wife wouldn't have faith to support what God wanted, and his loyalty was to God more than his spouse. Well, true, but then if he had enough faith in God, he would have said to her anyway, and regardless of what she said, he would have said, I'm going to do it because this is God speaking to me. He would have had if he that much faith in God, regardless of what his wife said. Yeah, well, he had faith in God, but, but if we look in the Bible, I think we see plenty of times where women were conniving enough to go and undo what the man was trying to do. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, he, and I think he understood that, that he was going to plan to go out and, and she would probably be working behind the scenes with her servants and aides to try and stop it. <laughs> you don't think he would, she would have done that? Well, sure, that's a prerogative. It's a <laughs> so why, why put yourself that extra obstacle, though, get over? <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> I want to get to something in Monday's lesson, the bottom paragraph. It says, During the next two centuries, however, the church suffered a series of spiritual and theological deterioration, and spiritual gifts largely disappeared. During the time of the Reformation, beginning with John Wycliffe in England, God used the Reformers to restore neglected truth, and they certainly had the gifts of knowledge, wisdom, and teaching. None of the main reformers, though, claimed to have a prophetic gift. This particular gift, according to Revelation 12:7, was to be manifested again in the end-time remnant church. You notice how they cite Revelation 12, 17. Anybody want to read that for us, please? Because the claim is made that the, um, pro the prophetic gift is supported by this text and is going to be in the end time remnant church. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is it obvious in that text alone that prophetic gift is being talked about? Yes. Uh, so there's the. We, I knew somebody would would automatically because we're so we're so you know educated here in this class. Revelation nineteen ten. Somebody read Revelation nineteen ten. NIV would be a good translation if anybody's got it. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, "Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." 
You see, that sews it up, right? See? Bam. We got it all nailed down. Because the, the remnant group holds the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Somebody read it out of the Good News translation. I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do it. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers, all those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. Worship God, for the truth that God revealed is what inspires the prophets. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't fit. The truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. Weren't the early reformers revealing the truth? Mm. They didn't claim the prophetic gift. They may have been revealing the prophetic gift. Would, would, that the spirit of Jesus is necessary in order to understand the Bible aright. That's correct. So would not the remnant people then be the people who not only keep the commandments, which should be living the law of love, right? Isn't that what the commandments are all about? Living the law of love? But possess the spirit which inspired the prophets. Would they, would they also actually hold to the real testimony that Jesus gave? And what was the central testimony that Jesus gave? John 14, 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 17, 4. Father, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. Would the remnant people be a people who live the law of love, but also are preaching the truth about God as revealed by Jesus? So... What would be more reliable identifier of God's end time people, in addition to living like Jesus lived, which means living the law of love, which would be a more reliable indicator? Someone manifesting supernatural abilities and having prophetic gifts as a historical figure in that organization, or a group of people holding to the actual testimony of Jesus, presenting the truth about the Father that Jesus presented? Now, if, if you're confused by the question, were the Jewish nation a specifically chosen special group of people on earth when Christ came? Yes. Were they blessed with the commandments of God? Yes. Were they blessed with multiple prophets to give prophetic gifts so the spirit of prophecy was manifested among that group of people? And in that very day, John the Baptist, another prophet, was among them. Yes? Yes. And when Jesus came, did that group hold to the truth about the Father as Jesus revealed, or did they reject that truth and thus crucify the Savior? So is the remnant group identified by having the commandments and having prophetic gift manifested among it, or is the real remnant group those who accept the truth that Jesus revealed about the Father? Amen. The latter. Hmm. So why do we say we're a remnant today? What's the basis of that? The red leather books. Isn't that right? And what are the red leather books? If... And let's just make an assumption here. Let's assume that all people on earth, regardless of religious background, let's assume that all people on earth agree that Ellen White had the genuine gift of prophecy. So we're not even going to argue that. We'll just assume it that it's true. What does that mean then for this church today? That we have the writings of a dead prophet. That's what we have. And what is this? I'm holding up a Bible. What is this? These are writings of dead prophets. And every church has these. So how today is our church distinguished from any other church on earth? We all have writings of dead prophets. What distinguishes us, is it not, 
is that we hold to the truth, the testimony of Jesus. We reveal about God what Jesus revealed about God. I got an email this week from Ty Gibson. Some of you know Ty. And uh, he had a fascinating insight about this beast of Revelation. And you know this beast of Revelation 13 is a conglomerate beast of all the beasts that went before it. You know, it's got elements of all the beasts that went before it. And, uh, and he put together the, the, of course, and this is all about worship, remember, because you have to wor- worship him who has the beast and so forth. So it's all about worship. And if, and if he put together the, the central lies of the systems of government or the worship systems that make this beast, Babylon's central deity was, was a god who had to be appeased. You had to, you had to pay. You had to do something to appease an angry and wrathful god. Th- that's the lion. The bear, the Medo-Persians, had a, had deterministic God. That's why the laws of the Medes and Persians can never be changed. Predetermination. It was it was determinism that God. It's like you know predestination, basically. God predetermines what's going to happen, and we don't have any choice. We're somewhat powerless in this whole affair. God's in charge, and He makes things happen. That's that's the God of the Medes and the Persians. The Greeks came along and married those two together, and came up with classical theism classical theism. You get it with all the Greek mythology. These gods are in charge, they make things happen, and they also have to be appeased by the works of men. <laughs> okay? This classical theism of, of, of the Greeks. And Rome came along and blended all this together, marrying it to a totalitarian state, and then put it under the umbrella of Christianity. And that's the intoxicating wine that all the world drinks. A deity who is power-mongering, dictatorial, controlling, and requires appeasement. And all the world, and if you look at all the major systems, are either intoxicated with this or reacting against it. And so the core, we've had the Reformation where we've gotten rid of certain, it's like peeling an onion, we've got certain layers gotten rid of, but the core to this this pagan view is an angry, wrathful God who has to be appeased. And all Protestant churches, including our own, still teach at the heart that the Father required appeasement in order to be just. That sin had to be paid and the Son pleads his blood to the Father. My blood, my blood, Father. Please don't be mad. Accept my blood. Accept my blood. In order to have atonement, have the penalty paid. And it is the heart of the wine of Babylon. And I think God is waiting for people on earth to reject that whole system that comes out of all those pagan um, empires and hold to the truth as revealed in Jesus that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For God's over the world that he gave his only son. God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up. How will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He's at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. In addition to the Father. Hey guys, if, if it's not good enough for you, if the lie of Satan had gotten so deep into your mind that you're afraid of the Father, don't worry. Jesus is at his side and he's also interceding for us. Take your security in Christ if you can't get it in the Father. Okay, And I think this, this last day remnant group is a people who have had all these lies removed, who have seen the truth as revealed in Jesus, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony that Jesus gave by the Father. My Father is not like that. Amen. What are we afraid of, of as a church to give that idea up? 
we're afraid that our penalty won't be paid. Mm-hmm. But that's not a, even a Christian thought. <laughs> Thank you. I couldn't have said that better. <laughs> that's exactly right. But the wine of Babylon has intoxicated the whole world, so most people think it is a Christian thought. Paganism has been Christianized and fed to the whole world. And I didn't go through the various theologies of the world or the religions of the world, but you have, you have this, this in most of the religions. Islam is an appeasement religion. Okay? Um, Judaism today is an appeasement works religion. It's a very legalistic system. Hinduism is actually a form of determinism. Karma will get you. Your karma. Okay? It's, it's deterministic. Uh, predetermined, all things, and your actions react back, and you'll get your karma, and you'll get yours in the end. Uh, Buddhism is a form of religious agnosticism. There is no higher power as an individual, a being, a deity. They're just forces that we can, you know, interact with. And, of course, atheism and agnosticism rejecting such a horrible and ugly version of God. I would never believe in a God like that, which is actually healthier than believing in a God like that. And so that's why when people tell me they don't believe in a God, I always say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And when they describe it to me, I go, good for you. I don't believe in him either. Mm-hmm. See, it's healthier to reject this lie about God than be an agnostic and an atheist than to believe God is like this. So is it just difficult for us to wrap our minds around someone who is so good? You know, because we don't have those kind of interactions even with us, as, even within human beings. We are born so self-oriented that we want to be self at the center of everything. The plan of salvation, as taught in a pagan view, has us at the center, doing works to appease God, and God becomes a tool that we can use to get our agenda. If we bring the right sacrifices, if we pay the right offerings, if we do the right things, God will do what we want him to do. And we can even have the satisfaction knowing God will punish the people we hate and make them suffer more than we can make them suffer, because we want them to pay for what they've done to us. When a person has pneumonia and they have fever, cough, and chills, fever, cough, and chills are the natural outgrowth of being sick with pneumonia. When you treat the pneumonia, healthy breathing and increased energy and greater vitality are the natural outcome of the sickness going away. The works of a righteous person are the natural outflow of a heart that loves others more than they love themselves. It is not difficult to act in love towards people you love. It's not a work. It's a joy. And so it, when, when the heart is renewed, as Christ wants to renew it, this is why you have to be reborn. You have to be regenerated. The heart has to be recreated. And when the heart is recreated, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Then the works that we do are the natural, unstoppable. Remember, it says the love of Christ compels us to action. You can't stop the good works when the heart's been renewed. But when we have the other view, the pagan view, then the heart doesn't get renewed at all because we truly don't trust God. We trust Jesus to protect us from God, but we never really open the heart to God. We don't come to know him as the new covenant experience. All of us know the Father. No, we don't know him. We believe lies about him. The heart remains closed, and and we then know that we're supposed to live right, so we begin working to live right. we got to do the right things. We set up the rules. We have all the things you can do. You can go wading on Sabbath, but you can't go swimming. Okay, Water above the knee becomes sin. Okay, We put the rules up to make sure our behavior conforms. You know, mustard, you're going to hell. Absolutely. I mean, it becomes a system of works. 
rather than an automatic outflow of a heart that loves others more than self. Yes? So are those automatic outflows to uh, dissuade or not eat mustard? Um, yeah, and, and th- those things don't happen because they're arbitrary. A person who is in love with the Lord might take a wonderful swim on Sabbath. A person who loves others more than himself might have mustard on their... Those works are outside of the Bible's teaching of the commandments. What does Paul say that the fulfillment of the law is? What fulfills the law? Love is the fulfillment of the law. When you genuinely have died to self and love God and others more than yourself, there is no sin. Genuinely. That, when you genuinely have that happen, you can do what you want. Because what you want is always loving God and others more. And that's, by the way, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, when they're done, the last fruit is self-control, self-governance. We are in governance freely, directing our own behaviors because we have been restored to be like God designed us to be. We're not puppets under his control. Yes. Well, then are you basically saying the Adventist church as we know it is not really the remnant church? Oh, I would never have said that. <laughs> because, yeah, but now, if, if... What were the Jew, was the Jewish nation in Christ's day genuinely his chosen instrument or body on earth when he came? What yes. I'm saying is yes. this. The did, church will come out of it. Did the Jewish nation on Christ's day, were they really his chosen nation on earth at that time for his purpose and mission? Yes. Yes, they were his. Did they fulfill the mission they were chose to do as an organized body? As a nation. Not that individuals come from that, because of course the individuals did. The individuals that made up the church were all Jews, the apostles, the foundation. Many of the priests came over. So from that organization came that group, yes. But the organized group itself, with its officials, leadership, and, 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 and body, rejected him. And, and so, you know, I, I'm, I am not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet. So I don't know whether our official general conference leadership will be on board and the church organization will go through that way. But I do know that the people who are God's remnant will, will look like that revelation text. They will be living the law of love and they'll be holding to the truth that Jesus revealed. Amen. I know that. Whomever that group is. I personally believe that this particular body is a special group at, t- at the end of time that has the best constellation of truths that can set the mind free and bring us back into the truth about God, thus we can experience that healing. But I do not believe that that from this body come all the saved in the end. I believe that maybe from this body come witnesses that can witness the truth about God that will result in multitudes from all nations, tribes, and kindreds, and people coming to salvation. And I don't think that God excludes his Holy Spirit and his working to this body, that there are people in other churches. And I've been reading stuff in lots of different organizations now that are that you can see the work of the Holy Spirit working, bringing truth to light in lots of organizations. Did God, even in the time of Israel, use people outside of Israel? Yes, God does not restrict himself. Yes, you've had your hand up for a while. Well, I was thinking about what you said, and I think we sometimes we just kind of paint with a very broad brush about works. But, not to disagree with you, but I do think that, call say, not eating mustard or not going up above your knees, those things can be a manifestation of love for God or love for yourself. And I think we have to be careful about just saying, oh, that's not... Because it is a work, or it is an action, or it is an outward thing. I think the best way I can love Dennis is to study all I can find out about health and live as healthily as I can. 
Because if I do things in my life that predispose me to diabetes or heart disease, I've made his life miserable. I've shortchanged him. I've cheated him. What I can do for you, it's better for you if I live a healthy life because your tax dollars aren't going into my long-term health care. So when I take care of myself, when I make those kinds of choices, either I can make them because I'm trying to win God's love or God's approval or I'm trying to follow on the dotted line, or it's because I can look at it and say, you know what, these actions really do love the people around me. They love the world God created better than my own selfish, fulfilling my own selfish needs. Amen. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. It goes back to motive, not just action. You can do both. You can live that healthy life so you can have seven more years to live live hedonistically on this earth. (laughs) Seven more years of partying. Woohoo! Okay? Or you can do it for the reasons you said. So you can be more useful. And this is why we are not to judge because we don't know this in most motives of the heart, do we? We don't know why people behave the way they behave. This is why we're not to be the judge. Yes. On Monday's lesson, you were going through the various comments that were made on that page. The understanding of why that page was written, though, is they believe that God is an arbitrary God who arbitrarily assigns gifts for this purpose or that purpose or to manipulate us to get a desired effect. The spiritual gifts are not given to manipulate us. Yes, and it's, yes. the gifts are given to open the avenues for the message to go forward to heal and save. That's exactly right. Okay, a couple of points I really wanted to get to. Wednesday's lesson talks about people who make predictions, and it gives examples of people who made accurate predictions that we would believe were not from uh, from the Holy Spirit, about um, Nostradamus predicting the Great Fire of London, 1666, about an Irish seer warned about W.T. Stead that uh, in 1911 he would drown in, uh, in 1912 in the Titanic, and that Jean Dixon published a vision when she said that she saw a Democrat would be elected president of the United States in 1960 and assassinated office. And of course, John Kennedy was. How do you deal with the reality that sometimes these people can make predictions that come true? Does Satan know the future? No. Okay. And so, can the angels, the evil angels of Satan, predict the things they intend to do? And as long as God doesn't restrict them, they carry those things out. Plus, they know they know human nature well enough that they can kind of predict the end result of some things just because they know us and the direction we can heading. even do that yeah so just because a prophecy comes true people just because a prophecy doesn't come true doesn't mean the person given the prophecy is from god mm-hmm. we shouldn't buy into that yes isn't prophecy also a gift of not telling the future encouraging teaching you're prophesying to us right now the way i read scripture in the corinthians um, well, we talked about that, that the prophetic gift is a, basically is not about prophesying the future. The lesson talks about the prophetic gift is someone who speaks the truth on God's behalf. It's a messenger or spokesperson for God. Um, that's, that's what the prophetic gift is. And we talked about whether a pastor has a prophetic gift or whether, whether a, a teacher has a prophetic gift. We, that was in one of our earlier lessons. That's a good point. Yes? Uh, sometimes God will give false prophets information. Um, you read that in the Old Testament where there was... Um, yeah. What was that? Yeah. Balaam? No, not very long. It was um, the old prophet. The old, the old prophet. prophet. Well, uh, the old prophet and the young prophet. It's not clear that the old prophet who lied was a false prophet. He might have been a true prophet. No, no. The, there was a bunch of prophets that, um, let's see, Jehoshaphat came to the king of Israel, and he had a whole bunch of prophets, right? And they were all prophesying the same thing. And then a prophet of God, he asked for another prophet. Micaiah. 
And uh, then Micaiah said that uh, those other prophets had been given a message, and it was a false message. Right. That God actually told, you know, said, okay, tell them that. And so there is a possibility that God could be giving information to these false prophets for a certain purpose. Um, it says actually at the text that an angel of the Lord, God said, who will go and be a lying spirit in the voice of these false prophets? And one angel set up and said, I will go and I will, I will be the lying spirit. And so he said, go and do it. And you can read this in, in Kings and you have to, uh, you have to, uh, determine whether you believe that Micaiah was actually describing events in heaven or Micaiah was telling a story to a superstitious king to help cause a certain fear. Hey, God is causing this, and you better take it serious. And so Micaiah is just crafting it in the language of the person who his audience is to take serious that what he had been told was false. The prophets of God are liars. Uh, I'm saying the prophets of God, absolutely, the Bible says they lie in some places. They do. The old and the new, the young and the old prophet, the Bible says explicitly, and he lied to him. So yes, sometimes the prophets of God are recorded in the scriptures of having told lies. Yes, I, I didn't make that up. The Bible says that. So, um, so you have to interpret. Again, every person has to think for themselves. Which is more likely, that God in heaven is having angels go down and lie to human beings, or that the prophet was crafting his his story, his presentation to the king Ahab in such a way that would be most likely to get Ahab to have the light go on and realize he's been he's not getting a true message. And in their mindset at that time, there was not so much the dualism. You don't see a lot of Satan showing up in the Old Testament. That happens more towards the New Testament. In the Old Testament, both the good and the bad were attributed to God. That was their mindset. That's the audience that's being spoken to. And that's why I see Micaiah saying to, ah- to King Ahab, hey, you know, God sent these flying spirits. It wasn't God doing it, but Ahab couldn't get his mind around an evil entity doing that. But he already knew that uh, Micaiah was going to tell him bad news and that it would come to pass. Yes, because he doesn't trust the prophets of the Lord. Because he always that's right. bad things. That's right. So I don't, I don't think telling a story would convince him any more than not telling a story. I think the context is, if you look at the whole weight of the Old Testament scriptures, that God was attributed to doing things he clearly did not do. Uh, God did not kill Saul, but the Bible says that God slew Saul. Saul fell on his own sword. Okay, And you'll find it all through the Old Testament. The Lord, and then he went into the story. So, And you're free to believe that God is sending his angels to lie, if you'd like to believe that. I'd, I choose to think that that's probably not the most accurate understanding of that passage because I don't see God telling lies. In fact, it says God uh, cannot sin. He cannot. And so this would be putting God bearing false witness, which would be in a violation of his own commandments, which he wouldn't do. In other places, it, God says, I lie not. Mm-hmm. God doesn't lie. God is the source of all truth. And um, those scriptures are difficult to understand. I wish we would have had time to go into that further. And I challenge each of you to go home, pull out your Bible, study that passage for yourself, come to your own conclusion on it, weigh it out, and what's more likely to be truthful, that God is a liar and sends his agents to lie, or that Micaiah was presenting uh, the facts in a way that was most likely to get Ahab to understand what, was, what the true issues are, that he was going down a false trail and he'd been deceived. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us alone in darkness to figure these things out for yourself, but you've sent us your your Holy Spirit, you sent us your word, you sent us your Son, and we ask now for the enlightenment of your Spirit, that we can have the gift of discernment, the gift of wisdom that you've promised those who, who seek it, that we can, as we study these things for ourselves, be fully persuaded in our own mind to the truth about you, that we can become that people who hold to the truth 
as Jesus revealed it about you and have written in our hearts your law of love that we love others more than ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.